0: Can I to you yeah, You treated me, babe, but I it I'm not your. Ooh,
1: ooh, ooh, ooh. Welcome to Strike Talk. Medieval writings tell us that in Norse mythology, sinners, upon their death, were sent down to a cold, dark, misty place called Niflhel. Holding domain there over the realm of the dead was the Norse goddess Hel spelled H-E-L. Half of her face was blue or black, the other half was flesh-colored. Hell, H-E-L, made sure that the worst of the dead sinners got their own corner of the underworld where they'd receive torture for their crimes. All cultures have myths about such a place. Greek mythology described the river Styx flowing underground, its water poisonous. The dead were ferried there by a boatman named Charon. Hades itself was guarded by a three-headed dog named Cerberus. The Chinese speak of Dayu, a complex system of underground chambers with 10 different levels, each punishing a different sin. The mythology of India speaks of an underground world named Patala. Navajo and Pueblo traditions have no concept of heaven or hell, but their mythology also speaks of the underworld as a dark and watery realm. Everyone seems to identify with the idea of an evil lurking beneath us. It's where sewers run, it's where rats and worms live, It's where demons hide. In the War of the Worlds, it was where all those crazy, walking alien buildings lurked for decades before they started trying to kill Tom Cruise. Hitler hid in an underground bunker. So did Saddam Hussein. Osama bin Laden hid beneath the caves of Tora Bora in Afghanistan. And there are 300 miles of tunnels beneath Gaza right now where Hamas stores both weapons and hostages, tunnels in which pipes intended to bring water to suffering citizens above have instead been repurposed into rocket launchers. It's important to remember that this particular river of evil is an existential threat to both Israelis and Palestinians, and as someone who prays for the safety of both, that river troubles me deeply. That seems like a pretty non-controversial statement, and I'm a little bewildered that the board of my beloved guild could not see its way to say so. That board's role, its only role, which it performed so brilliantly and courageously during the strike, is to set policies on what is best for the guild. Period. The DGA issued a simple statement about October seventh, and since then, no DGA members are asked about the Middle East. SAG did the same, and no SAG members are asked about the Middle East. But now WGA members, who just unquestionably won a righteous strike, who should at this moment be riding a wave of their guild's ascendant power and prestige, are instead spending their days answering media inquiries about, you guessed it, the Middle East. Was that in the best interest of the membership? I think it pulled all 9,000 of us into that underground. The places that sunlight cannot reach to disinfect. Because it turns out Hollywood sits on top of such a river too. For all of the goodness and care and philanthropy in our business, and there is much of it, for all of the dedication and love that we all pour into our work, there is something flowing beneath us that informs and infects us all. I think it's fear. We are a business of anxious people. Each of us made more anxious by the constant uncertainties of our business itself. A big movie is about to premiere. Everyone involved with it has worked tirelessly to share it with the world. Crazy money has been spent to market it. Audiences have previewed it and checked the top two boxes. It opens and it dies. The people just don't come and no one knows why. That would make anybody anxious. The DVD market is a bottomless revenue stream. Everyone is profiting from it. Even movies with average theatrical performances can become hits in their afterlife. Then, suddenly, the DVD market disappears. Poof. That kind of thing makes people anxious too. We are all subject to fear. Every career in Hollywood always feels like it's one bad weekend away from being over. Dread is a given for us. Fear made otherwise rational studios decide that they had to imitate Netflix, thus plunging our entire business into an economic model that made no sense. Then, when their losses in streaming became catastrophic, Fear made those studios panic. Their remedy, instead of turning to the WGA and SAG as partners in storytelling and mutually finding a solution to the utter mess that streaming had created, was instead to rely on Carol Lombardini and the clumsy, ineffective, and soulless machinery of her negotiating tactics in an effort to make writers and actors bear more risk and financial uncertainty. The result, predictably, was two strikes. Fear, even more than greed, makes representatives think it's a good idea to demand $50 million for a star to appear in a Netflix movie, even though that means that every other actor on the call sheet will be working at scale. And when an agency sends a spec script to a producer and says, we're going to be commissioning you on this, even though we won't actually be representing you in any way, and we won't be making your deal, it's fear that forces that producer to comply. The entire argument that enveloped our business this summer about AI was entirely driven by fear. Each studios fear that their rivals would have a new technology and every writer and actor fearing that that technology would be a career ender, leaving all of our families destitute. And fear is now going to make it hard for SAG to accept anything less than total victory on every deal point, lest they look weak. Folks, I think we're all better than this. We're not being ferried down to hell. We're above ground. We're okay. We get to do great jobs, but only when we do those jobs together, cooperatively respectfully, generously. That option is always open to us. Fear isn't a choice, but what we do with it is. And hell, H-E-L, isn't the only game in town, according to Norse mythology. Norse heroes, upon their death, were sent not down, but up to Valhalla. I can't claim to know what Valhalla looks like. My guess is it has lots of lakes and a beautiful baseball diamond. All I know for sure is that it isn't to be found anywhere near the Sherman Oaks Galleria. To discuss that with me, I have two true gentlemen of our business. Please join me in welcoming John Patak and Mark Evans. So good morning, John, good morning, Mark. Thank you for being with me. I wanna talk about where the business has been, where the business is at the moment and where you think the business is going. But what I'd like to start with is just hear your stories. You both have risen to great heights in the business. Where'd you start? What called to you about the business? John, let's start with you. I would say that I kind of fell into the
2: business uh, in the 60s because I loved cinema so much. Movies, especially in the early 60s, so swept me away when I was at UCLA. And not really knowing what I was doing, can't even remember what I was uh, filling in at, at the blanks as far as what I was majoring in. I was just getting through the day. But... As a junior, I suddenly said, you know, I love movies. Why not just jump in the pool? And for the next three or four years, I not only worked my way through a uh, school as an assistant manager in the theater business with Max Lemely at Stanley Warner Theater in Beverly Hills. So I learned retail, which very few people in our business really quite understand, especially the talent that ended up being very valuable. I was seeing something like 200 movies a year. I was running every film uh, uh, a series at UCLA. But then I got out and I thought, uh-oh, now what am I gonna do? Because film schools in those days, very unlike today, were not trade schools. They were really more part of an art department. I ended up running a small theater, the Granada Theater on Sunset Strip for three years again, retail. Uh, and after that, I got a job in uh, at the American Film Institute in its first year and at Greystone, uh, which the city of Beverly Hills had given AFI for a dollar a year with the understanding that we were going to clean it up and maintain it. It was a disaster. So it sort of went from there. And in 1971, Mike Medavoy, Uh, I became friends with Metaboy because he was one of the few agents that would actually come over to Greystone to see what the filmmakers were doing. And he said, why don't you be an agent? I said, what's that? (laughs) I had no idea what an agent did. You know, I thought that was sweet smell of success. I I didn't know. And he says, you know, we give you the list of clients and you try and get them jobs. Now, I needed the money. (laughs) I needed $125 a week. So I I basically became an agent day one without sitting at a desk or going through a mailroom. I was thrown right into the lake. So I learned fast and I realized I really love the business of the business. You give me a blank piece of paper, boy gets off bus, bumps into girl, too many options. I would have no idea what to do. But I had an editorial sense. And like I said, I understood retail. So I love the transactional career-building aspect of the business, and I got extremely
0: lucky. Mark, how did you, how did you jump in? It's so funny because the beginning of the story is exactly like John. I uh, ran the movie theater at the University of Chicago uh, while I was being outclassed academically by uh, everybody around me my junior year invited the Chicago Film Festival to come down and show their movies on campus, which they had done many years beforehand. Uh, Then the year after I graduated school, they offered me to be the program director of the film festival. So for five years in my early 20s, I flew around the world watching 350 movies a year while I was making $21,000 a year. So can Berlin, Venice, uh, you know, in the most elegant manner of a a broke kid in his 20s who uh, loved movies, Uh, then... I had a friend who was uh, moving to Los Angeles to go to the Peter Stark program, uh, and he said, "Why don't you come to Los Angeles with me when I go to Los Angeles?" Uh, then I came out here. I became, after flying around the world for five years, I became an assistant to a very talented producer named Julia Chasman, and was getting her hot tea. Uh, as opposed to hanging out at the Cannes Film Festival and, you know, worked my way up the apprenticeship of it. The most important thing that happened to me, maybe in my entire career, was Rosalie Swedlin introducing me to Laura Ziskin. And I went and worked for Laura for two years when she and Sam and Amy and everybody were making the first Marvel or the first Spider-Man movies. Uh, And then as it happens in the business, while the most important thing I did on the Spider-Man movies was put three by five cards of different scripts on the wall, John Goldwyn called me and said, Hey, I hear I'm supposed to hire you and you're the Spider-Man guy. Uh, And, Uh, For uh, the the three by five cards were really good. It was a good summary of the scripts, Billy. Uh, And uh, so then I ended up for, I think, 16 years at Paramount, starting as a VP and going all the way up. And as those rented studio chairs uh, uh, have a time limit to them, uh, you know, about six years ago, I was thrust back out into the producing community. And and that's
1: that's the short version. So each of you started out with with the part of the business that actually contacts our customers. And one of you went on to become a giant agent at not one but two agencies. And the other went on to become a studio chief. What feels different about the business today from the business when you were in those positions? I can start with that.
2: Since I went through more decades, When, when I started out in the business, it was like Mickey Rooney, a Mickey Rooney movie. I mean, a lot of us were out of film schools. We kind of exploded out of the 60s with a great deal of arrogance and how to. And it was all about storytelling you go to parties and people would just talk about movies they never talked about deals even getting a job was incredible it would buy another six months and it was also all about writing whether it was i mean a number of my clients uh, colin higgins uh, paul schrader tom rickman uh, john millius these clients it was all started with the script and the joke even then was Everybody in the business is just making phone calls and waiting for a call while somebody out there is actually writing a script, which they're going to be talking about in six months. You know, you put a writer together with a producer, they figure out a pitch, you go around town and try and set up a development deal. And I was lucky enough to be part of kind of a wave where the studios were going through a transition of old school studio way of looking at something and an expanded way of reaching a much wider demographic, which had already occurred in music. So you you walked into a studio executive's office wearing a tie dye t-shirt. You were all the closer to getting a development deal. And it was, so it was propelled a lot, again, by music, by ideas, by storytelling, and by the ability to convince somebody that this is a terrific story. And you could get development deals, and then it'd go through another process. Taxi Driver took us over three years to get made. Uh, Paul Schrader was the first writer on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but the only thing left in the, in the movie that represents Schrader is uh, when uh, the lead is caught on the railroad tracks with the light. So an unbelievable amount of transitions went through the development of any screenplay before it got to be a movie. You know, I called it a filtering system. The writer's arguing with himself. Then he argues with the producer. Then they have to argue with the studio executive, and then it's the director. By the time you finish arguing, I'm amazed that a lot of writers are still we're still alive. But it was a filtering system that had an a, an attempt to make a product better, jumping to today, there is something about the filtering system as aggravating as it was that the streamers have, it don't encourage as much as the producers and studio executives did at the time. Because I think the streamers are basically simply filling time and space. They're not dependent on attendance or tickets. Uh, they're just moving right along.
0: Mark, what's your sense? I, I, listening to John talk about it is super interesting. You know, I was so lucky when I went to Paramount to work for great executives. I mean, Sherry Lansing was genuinely one of the greatest studio executives of all time. And being able as a relatively young executive to watch the way she managed that place and great executives who worked for her like karen rosenfeld but at the beginning even when i went to the studio it was what you know john said you had a lot of development money you took things through drafts you worked through it and then very early in my studio career, or, or a little bit into it, everything switched to the biggest tentpole movies. The first movie we greenlit at Paramount, over a hundred million dollars, was Mission Impossible Three, right? So if that is, I don't know exactly what it is, Billy. Twenty years ago, right? It took from it took less than 20 years, let's say 12 to 15 years to get to the biggest movies all costing over 250 million dollars to 300 million dollars. And what that did at the studios was take the money away from all from a lot of other projects, right? If you're spending $250 million on a tentpole movie, then you're not spending the same amount of development money to push everything through the process. And with the, and I mean it when I say it, the, the brilliant um, advent of Marvel and what they were able to accomplish and get everybody to get everyone to go to every movie they made for 15 years, everybody started chasing it, right? So we would make five, six, seven Transformers movies. We'd open a room to develop five or six Transformers movies. You were only chasing the biggest of the movies and the arms race of it in this belief that you have to get everybody to go to a movie for it to be successful took over the business of it. So we, we sit in a world today where, and I think there are many deeply talented studio executives who are being asked to come up with movies that everybody can go to as opposed to Looking at some of the, I mean, you, you could go through Sherry's legacy the studio and, you know, just pick any one of a, a, a different genre. The Jack Ryan movies, the Alex Cross movies, these movies which could be incredibly successful for a studio, but wouldn't depend on all four quadrants of the audience going to them in massive amounts to make them successful.
2: In the early 90s and through the 90s, I think the studios suddenly realized there was a whole world out there. It wasn't just domestic. You had UIPs so Paramount, MGM, and Universal were feeding their films into a third party. And ironically, they would use the same marketing materials that were developed here. They didn't think of global distribution in the way it, uh, it, it, they came to think of it with, uh, with the franchise pictures. And a lot of that had to do with theatrical growth. I think in, this, in the 90s, people talk about how China is so huge and what have you. In the 90s, into the late 90s, China only had about 200 screens with all, over a billion uh, population. And the studios suddenly realized if you're making blue shirts and red shirts, the red shirts only sold in the United States and the blue shirts sold all over the world, well, what kind of a decision are you going to make? So Mark's absolutely correct about that. And the other thing is part of it, later in the 90s, except for a few characters, like I went through this representing Ridley Scott and Tony Scott, they they began to see that there were so many people that could direct, you know, the, whether it was the film schools or whatever, you only had five or six film schools in the 60s and going into the 70s. Right now there are over 200 film schools. Chapman and USC both have 1,500 people, and it's a trade school. And you can hire these people, these directors, for a lot less money than it costs to hire a gross player, you know, get, So that changed too. There was no longer the $8 million to $10 million director plus five to 6% of the uh, gross, you could get somebody that really knew how to direct and could follow the board and all of that. And, and so uh, the, the talent got, the talent pool got larger when talent pools get larger. Uh, salaries go down
1: because there's more options. Over the course of these strikes, my eyes have been open to ways in which Hollywood abuses all kinds of people, not just writers and actors, Um, among them producers. Uh, When I first started writing, producers got a $25,000 development fee when, when you set up a project as a writer. And, you know, a young producer could set up two or three projects and live for a year, which is how a lot of great careers got started. And then suddenly that development fee went away. I can't think of any other business in the world in which you ask people to work and you don't compensate them in some way, but producers are now routinely not compensated for doing the work of developing a script with the writer. And oftentimes producers will work for two or three years on something and never see a dollar from it. Um, I believe that they have to stop calling it development fees. I think they have to start calling it producer's commencement so that you just tie it to the idea that when you commence a writer, you commence the producer you're both doing work and that work is really really important but i wonder when was the decision made inside the studio system to stop giving producers money for doing the work of developing with writers because many writers would including me would be lost without great producers to help them develop and how did that decision somehow fly in our business mark
0: well i I, I think it happened in a, a couple ways Billy you know when I went to the studio when I went to paramount which was 2002 or 2003 I bet there were 12 to 15 producers with overall deals at the studio you know and and they were seen as responsible for making for starting the movies that the studio would make Right, And there were a lot of great producers making good overall fees, having support from the studio, and then, of course, the development fees. I I would say that by the mid-2000s, those um, deals started to go away. So maybe a little later, 2008, 2009, something like that, deals would get cut because um, everybody was fighting to find the profitability for their divisions and the overall deals were a big drain on it. And the, the cut in the producing fees sort of came at the same point when the studio said, we're not gonna pay gross now. And cutting back on everything to try and make their divisions profitable every quarter. When I started in the business, let's say Warner Brothers was making 35 movies a year. Paramount was making 25 movies a year. Studios needed producers when the volume was that high. Now we live in a world, I mean, the world now is crazy, but even two years ago, studios were making 10 movies a year or eight movies a year. And, and the studios don't feel like they, the producer is as necessary in a world like that.
2: You don't even hear producers referenced unless they're hyphenates where they have the power because they also direct or whatever, or they become
0: brands. The, the process of going through and working on something, building a script is exactly like building a cut in the editing room. It, it takes forever and looking at it from all angles to do it. The truth is, when I started at Paramount, we probably had 75 or $80 million in development money a year. I would not be surprised now if it were a third of that studios don't want to develop any more because the business people on the other side of the studios look at the ratio of what comes out of that process. Oh, you only get one out of 10 movies made from your development process. We're not going to spend the development money. Uh, and, And so then, you know, you end up in a situation where and by the way, nothing better than breaking uh, a lesser experienced writer or a director, but where you're making deals with um, less experienced people for less money because you can't afford the more expensive people like like John was talking about, about the directors, but also the big part of it is we're not making at the studios and really for the most part not at the streamers either those 35 40 50 million dollar movies where a writer can cut their teeth on something a director can cut their teeth on something a studio executive can cut their teeth on something i learned how to be a studio executive by supervising the smaller budget movies when I started and going up the ladder of responsibility in it. When we're not making those movies, either as studio executives, writers, directors, you're thrown into these massive budget movies with no experience of how to run them. Billy, I think the other thing that's really interesting is the challenge of getting a movie through marketing at a studio, through finance at a studio is a really difficult thing. You know, the when I was at the studio and I'm, I, I know it hasn't changed, you ha- when you do your profit and loss statement on the movie to propose making it your P&L, you have to promise that it's going to return uh, a 110% of the investment, right? And you have to go to marketing and beg them for what they're going to put down as their base for the movie so you can get it through Greenlight. There was also a time, and these people still exist, but when Sherry believed in a movie, she made a movie, you know, and the marketing people got in line behind her to say it. I can have regular conversations with studio executives now where they say that their big boss says, well, you got to go convince marketing that we should make it, you know? So the trust in making the movies and making those decisions and, you know, God knows the classic versions of it, you know, Bob Evans saying we're making The Godfather, obviously that's gone but you know we lived in a world when when i worked for Brad Gray Brad Gray would say yeah well we're making the movie figure out how to make it successful you know and and i think the loss of that and the trust of that in creative executives is is very similar to the loss it, that producers have suffered along the way of it, right? Every studio executive loves to believe, loves to know that they're a creative person in the process of making the movie. It's really hard to get the movies through finance and through marketing. And I don't think that marketing has figured out in this current TikTok world where to spend the money when i left the studio we were still spending 55 percent of a marketing budget on television ads i know that i'm not watching any uh commercials uh, after the bottom of the seventh inning when i'm watching a baseball game I, i'm going back to look at my phone at emails or social media whatever it is and The money that we spend on marketing, which feels like it has become so much more ineffective than when you have an NBC Thursday night lineup, which everybody is going to watch the commercials during Seinfeld, you know? And so I think that we have to figure out a way and, and pressure the marketing people to say, What are we going to do? How are we going to change it? You know, my kids find out about movies on TikTok. You have both weathered
1: strikes. Did this Writers Guild strike feel different than other strikes you weathered in your careers? Does the tag strike feel different than other strikes you weathered in your careers? It does to me.
0: You know, a I I think the biggest part of it, Billy, and you have talked about it so thoughtfully throughout the strikes on the podcast, is that there are two systems of making movies now. There's the theatrical distribution system, and there's the streaming system, and they are two completely different business models, and trying to figure out how, how a group of People, how a group of companies can be on the same page about how they're negotiating when their businesses are completely different. And this transition period that we're going through to, who knows, three to five years, however it's going to settle down, what studios survive, what streamers survive, um, it's made this one really, really difficult.
2: Yeah, I. I... I totally agree. Uh, You know, they've all, all the strikes in different years, they've all had their same sort of narrative and result. But this one is so different because you're not only dealing with uh, streaming, which when it first came out, appeared to be an option rather than something. And then COVID turned it into a necessity because the theaters had to close. But they're suddenly dealing with not just a different structure, but you're dealing with owners that are in a corporate uh, business and shareholders and a number of people and an entire corporate culture that really doesn't understand or care that much about the problems of storytelling as opposed to cornflakes. And it, it's all about units and the streaming option, I think the streamers in an odd way, particularly Netflix, kind of got ahead of themselves and they suddenly realized, what are we going to do out here? They had to go to the rest of the world and dealing in France and the uh, Germany and what have you is a lot different than a freewheeling United States and how they would even collect or identify uh, uh, residuals. Is, is something that foreign countries really don't know that much about themselves. So you're dealing with a, not only a very naive corporate structure, but one where profit is still much more important than the details and problems that exist with labor. You know, you have to, like you say, 110%. That 10% is how much it costs to run the place. So that's a that's
1: break-even. That's not profit. Mark? Now that you are not a studio executive, can you share with us what studio executives actually say about the Writers Guild?
0: In the studios, writers beyond, beyond the closest relationships and beyond the top tier, right? Are, are seen as interchangeable. This this writer couldn't do this thing for me i'm gonna call this writer to hire them to do exactly this thing right whatever creative beat that is i'm gonna move on and do another step those writers who make it to the very top of the business then have established themselves at doing something incredibly well oh we'll go to this writer for a character pass we'll go to this writer to get the action on the page those are all seem as seen as completely indispensable and there are i don't know at any one time 15 where you say okay when we go out to talent it's going to have the latest name of the writer on it i want to put this prominent writer's name on it because This actor will have heard of that writer. The best studio executives, Billy, and again, I think there are a bunch of great ones right now. The best studio executives know what writers do and find a partnership with them and the producer to build it out to where it needs to be, right? Why well, you need more than one step, why well, you need two steps, why well, you need that collaboration, why well, you need the development money to do it. And and the I always found myself as a studio executive gravitating back to the same creative people, whether it was directors we were working with or overall deals we had but my God, if you read a great script by a writer and you have success with it, you go back to that group, that person again to do it, right? So the best studio executives have a, a deep care for what the writing process is and, and what a writer is able to do um, that nobody else can do. And the worst studio executives go, oh, I'll just get this person to do exactly my notes and pay them to do that. But what do studios think about the Guild collectively? Honestly, I think I, I think they think about the Guild. We have to deal with these deals every three years. And out of every five or seven cycles, five cycles, it's going to be a disaster for a minute, and then we're going to get through it and move on. I think I think collectively, Billy, the studios think about it every two and a half years when the deal is about to come up.
2: The, the strikes and the guilds are concerned with minimum basic agreements, They're primarily. I think that agents aren't necessarily involved with a lot of that. And that they consider strikes to be a bit of an aggravation that just stops the business. And they become extremely embracing of it. But at the same time, it's like saying, come on, get it done. I mean, agents are transactional. You know, that's why an agent's uh, negotiations having to do with an agent and a buyer of a studio, what have you, it has a foreseeable end that's not going to take very long. And the strikes union negotiations are so different than transactional negotiations and they drive you crazy. It's almost as if you don't want to hear about it. So I think that it's considered with agents and agency to be generally a distraction and an aggravation,
1: not to minimize the importance. So don't, don't, don't get me wrong. And and, and would you say the same is true in terms of the way studios and agencies view SAG collectively? I I think
0: at the end of the day, Billy. Now, listen, again, right, it it is all about the specific people you're working with and who you're going to go. I don't think anybody has a broad-based view of it as an important collective.
1: Uh, Fear is the word of the day. We're going to leave it there. I want to thank you both. I knew you would both be great guests. I had to beg each of you. Now, the story can be told. um, We're 26 weeks into a strike, and I've been asking these guys to be on the show for all 26 of those weeks. Um, They finally caved and said yes and brought forth all sorts of insights as I knew they would. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. It's my first podcast, so I got through it. In 2018, I was pitching a miniseries around town that would ultimately be made for Showtime and called The Comey Rule. It was about James Comey and how he was fired as director of the FBI. I knew that might sound really dry and political, which meant I needed to make the pitch work on a purely emotional level. So the first line of that pitch was, this is a love story between a man and an institution. That's what I see and hear when I talk to people like John Patak and Mark Evans. They have always been in love with movies and they're still in love with movies. They're in love with our business itself. I think that's why Hollywood is so good at making love stories. Hollywood is a love story. And every one of us is a part of that. We're all lovers here. We love storytelling, characters, moments, stages, sets, trailers, lights, cameras, action, takes, performances, the feeling of driving onto a lot. We love theaters, crowds, popcorn, awards, applause, promise. It all feeds us, inspires us, sustains us. Somehow heartbreak does feel good in a place like this. But strikes don't and my objection to the current system of negotiations is that every three years we take all of that love, all of that hope and promise, all of that popcorn, and we place it in the care of a process that doesn't work, directed by a woman who doesn't share any of our guiding passions. We either join hands or we don't, all of us. Writers, actors, producers, IATSE, Teamsters, and yes, studios and networks. We're all in love with the same thing. We all bleed for it. We either take care of it and honor it or it dies. And that's how we wind up in hell with two L's. I want to thank my wonderful guests and my brilliant producers, David Farino and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Jennifer Cavallari and Oliver Barrett IV. This is Strike Talk. I can...